But I want you to imagine for a moment uh, somebody called Hez. He's 43 years old. Uh, he comes uh, from a big family and uh, he loves to eat all food that's put in front of him uh, because he works hard every day. And uh, he's on his way to the promised land. Um, some of his friends are not keen on Moses, but Hez is a bit of a fan. And uh, he gives him the benefit of the doubt. He trusts everything that Moses says. And uh, in fact, he saw something amazing last week. Uh, because as he camps with the God of his forefathers, Hez was worshipping when the glory of the Lord came to the tent, to the tabernacle. Hez was prostrate on the floor before God. Then he heard screams. Two of Aaron's sons are killed. What's going on? Hez listens in as Moses and Aaron explain the laws that they are to follow. Eat this. Don't eat that. Touch this. Don't touch that. And then they start talking. We didn't in chapter 11. But then they start talking about skin and walls and diseases. And at that point, Hez stops listening properly because he starts looking at the mark on his arm. A friend had used the word psoriasis with a P. <laughs> Someone else had used the word leprosy. Someone else pointed and said mold. Someone else said it's just eczema. He was confused. What is he to do? His wife knew what to do. Go and see the priest. Try and see Aaron. If not, Find one of his sons who's still alive. But Hez is confused. Can I go near the tabernacle or not? Am I clean or unclean? Can I bring a sacrifice or not? What do I do? And in a sense, that is the position that the Israelites were in as the laws are given to them. We've been looking, haven't we, and seeing the problem that the Israelites had. God is in their midst. Moses, in verse 1, Chapter 1 is outside the tent. We know that Leviticus and the rules and the regulations and everything else work because Numbers 1, chapter 1, Moses speaks to God inside the tent. More accurately, God speaks to Moses inside the tent. So we see that it works, and we've been looking really at the structure of Leviticus. So we saw ritual sacrifices and feasts and festivals at the bookends of the book. Um, then we saw last week... That's right, last week. Uh, the priests, as we're moving in. This week, and we saw the, the role of the priests, we saw the glory of the Lord coming down, but we saw the problem of the priesthood when the two sons were killed. We still need a priest. We saw that, and we saw that Jesus is the priest that we need. We're moving in now to the centre of the book. Next week, God will be looking at the Day of Atonement, which is right at the centre of the book. This week, we're either side of that Day of Atonement, looking at ritual purity, as we were reading, and also moral purity as well. Now, as we start to look at this and give the kind of overview of what the Lord is teaching us here, if you think of fire, fire is a good thing, isn't it? Fire, it gives you heat. Um, I know that for some reason we're not allowed log burners anymore and all that kind of thing because the environment... I'll get off my hobby horse about that. Not sure that a little thing on your patio is going to make much difference when China build a new 
power station, coal power station every week, but there you go. Um, but fire is good, isn't it? It keeps you warm. Also, if you've got one on the patio at night, it gives you some light as well, doesn't it? So fire is a great thing to have. You can cook food on a, on a fire. If you're really posh and you've got an arga, that's kind of fire and all that kind of stuff, isn't it? So fire is great. It really is. But you've got to approach it in the right way because fire is also very dangerous. Approach fire in the wrong way and of course you can die. Deuteronomy 4, 24 reminds us our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29 quotes that. As we saw last week, the priests in Leviticus 10 found out to their cost what it meant to approach a consuming fire in the wrong way. It resulted in them being consumed by the fire of God. And so we've got to approach God correctly. And that's what chapters 11 and the other chapters are all about. It's about approaching God. It's about being clean in his presence. So first thing, very simple questions we're asking as we look at the book of Leviticus. The first question is, what's the purpose of these ritual and moral instructions? Well, in lots of ways, these chapters actually are the hardest to understand. As we were reading it, I know I read it quite fast, but it's quite confusing, isn't it? If the animal chews a cud but doesn't do this, it's unclean. If it does that, it's clean. Uh, some animals that you think may be clean are then not clean. And so as you read it, you think, well, is that clean? Is that unclean? Is that animal? So it is confusing. You don't know quite what to do. And as we, as New Covenant believers, look back on these rules... In a sense, I think they're the hardest for us to understand and kind of to comprehend. We saw last week, the, well, two weeks ago, we looked at the sacrifices fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus. We get that. Last week, we were looking at the priesthood. We get that that was fulfilled by Jesus because we know he's our great high priest. And Hebrews is so helpful in that. And so we, we understand that. And as we take communion however often we take communion it reminds us we're looking back always of Jesus's sacrifice and his priestly role we're always thinking about these things but purity rules and instructions are very difficult the general rule as we look at these chapters are that if you are clean and pure you can be in the presence of God if you're unclean and impure, you can't be in the presence of God. So what are these ritual, ritual instructions? Well, chapter 11, as we read, is all about clean and unclean foods, what an Israelite can eat and what they can't eat. Anything that has a divided hoof or chews the cud, except for certain animals. Ending in the sea, except those things without fins and scales and certain things. Certain birds are unclean. Certain insects are unclean. As we were reading, if they've got joints in their legs, they, you can eat them, but if they haven't, you can't. Well, why? That's the question. Why is it you can eat some birds and you can't eat others? What's the difference between eating a gull and a... You can't eat a cormorant or an osprey, but something else. What, what's going on? What's it all about? Well, some people will argue, some commentators will argue, that these animals pose a, a health threat. 
So God is giving them kind of hygiene laws, if you like. That the animals there are dirty animals, basically. But as you read the list, some of the animals are fairly clean. But they're called unclean. So is it that these animals, birds, fish, etc., are creatures that come into contact with dead carcasses? So are they things that feast on dead things? Is that it? Well, it's possible. Animals with claws tend to be carnival, carnivores. So there could be an element of truth there. But the reality is we're just not told what separates and why you can eat some things and why you can't eat others. The reason behind it is not really given to us. Why has God chosen some birds and not others, some animals and not others? But the chapter does deal with what used to do with touching something that's dead. So is it about life and death? Is that what it's about? Let's carry on. Chapter 12, all about purification after childbirth. Chapter 13 and 14 is all about defiling skin diseases and mould in the house. Some houses get black mould today, but we don't call a priest, do we? Um, We'll talk about that in a moment. Chapter 15 is all about contact with reproductive fluids, which is why I definitely chose Matthew chapter 11, all about the food laws. It's a good one to read, isn't it? But the pattern is, if you read, if you uh, touch the wrong thing or eat the wrong thing, then you're not sinning. That's the point. Nowhere there do you read that you are sinning. What you read is, so it's not spelling out sin, it's spelling out whether you're clean or not. Whether you're safe to be in the presence of a holy God because you're clean. We've already looked at sin with the sacrifices. The sacrifices are all about sin. This is all about being clean or unclean. So what's it really all about? Why is God specifying the real specifics, the real detail here? What's it really all about? Well, the laws in many ways here, they're teaching the Israelites obedience. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve could eat anything, but... The Israelites can eat anything, but... Here's a list. So can they be obedient to the instructions that the Lord gives them in a way that Adam and Eve weren't. So it's a test of their obedience for them to grow in obedience to God and in living to God. It's also, of course, teaching them self-denial. Israel are there uh, as God's people to show the living God, to reflect the glory of God to the surrounding nations. Some of the surrounding nations would be eating some of the foods that they are not. Israel are saying we are different, we follow the living God, and they are showing that by the way they live, by the things that they don't eat. Some of them, of course, is part of self-denial. We think that, you know, if any of you would become vegetarian, uh, or if you've got vegetarians in the family, you know, the smell of a bacon sandwich is incredibly tempting, isn't it? There's some foods which smell amazing, which tempt you. And that then that self-denial comes in. Am I going to put my principles above (laughs) 
my stomach churning away thinking about a bacon sandwich. Well, God is doing this here. Are you going to put, Israelites, what God instructs before your own desires? The key really was at the end of chapter 11, uh, verse 45. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So that's why they've been given to us. That's the purpose of these ritual uh, instructions. But we've also got moral instructions from uh, verses 18 to 20. So it's 11 to 15 are the, um, the ritual instructions. Now we get the moral instructions as well. They're about really how the Israelites are to live for God. Chapter 18, all about sexual relationships. You must be holy. Chapter 19 and 20 are mainly explanations of the Ten Commandments, the punishments that will occur for God's people if they fail to keep the commands. Now, again, why? Why is, giving, why is God giving these ritual instructions, eat this, don't eat that, do this, don't do that, skin disease, wall, mold in the wall, all that kind of thing? What's the purpose of the moral instructions? Why is God saying, you can do this but not do that, live in this way? Well, again, God has called the Israelites out to live in the midst of the world. They are to live in a different, distinct way. They are to be like the God who is in their midst. The God that they are worshipping, who is there with them, they are to reflect him. They are to show him. They are to be like him. The God that they worship. Don't live like the other nations. Live like your holy God. And the three main areas really are social justice, sexual purity, and caring for the poor. And that's where they're to be different to the other nations. You know, we've lost in the last 50 years because I think the impact of the social gospel uh, where, you know, basically churches were just preaching, you know, kind of social issues and social justice. That's not the gospel. But we've lost, haven't we, as, a ch as churches that saved people, that followers of God should be interested in caring for the poor, as well as sexual purity and social justice. It is interesting, isn't it, that we often love to gossip about somebody else's sexual purity, but we would never gossip about somebody's lack of social justice or somebody's lack of caring for the poor. But really, as we look back at Leviticus, those are the thrusts of how the people of God are to live. And those things don't really change in the New Testament. You see those things coming time and time again in the epistles, don't we? That we are, as churches, New Testament churches, to be different from the world around us, and that should be seen in sexual purity, amongst other things, but also came for the poor and social justice. I think the last few years have seen, haven't they, a revitalization of churches getting involved in community in this way. Anyway, that's a diversion. But the Israelites are to live differently from every other nation because God is in their midst. A holy God is in their midst, and he wants clean people in his midst. Be holy, for I am holy. Be separate, for I am separate. That's what holiness means. It's separation or set apart from sin. 
And God, by nature, always does what is right. He is always completely holy. But as we saw last week with the priest, he's not safe, is he? It's not safe being in the presence of God when you're unclean or you do something that God has told you not to do, as we saw with the priests. And so the people in the camp with God in the midst need to be holy and clean if they have God living with them. So, third thing, we've been looking at the same kind of structure in the last two weeks. How does Jesus fulfill these instructions? After all, Jesus has fulfilled the requirements of the law, all of it in its completion, the law and the prophets. He's fulfilled it all. So he has, it has gone for us because Jesus has fulfilled it. Well, we, we've seen in the past weeks, Jesus is our once for all sacrifice for sin. We saw last week he was our great high priest. But the ritual laws and the moral laws associated with tabernacle and temple life have been fulfilled in Jesus as well. And by fulfilling those things, the, or these things rather, then things associated with that way of living for God have gone as well because Jesus has fulfilled them. So we don't worry when we go to the fish market about whether our fish has got scales or not. We don't worry if you go to the Far East and you're eating fried insects or whatever, whether the, the insect has got junks in its legs or not, or four legs or whatever. The reality is Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. We can't keep the moral law. We fail. That's why we look to Jesus. But what about the ritual purity laws? How has Jesus fulfilled those for us? We get the moral law. We get that we failed, you know, by our thoughts, by our deeds, by what we watch, by what we say, by what we do. We get that we failed morally and that Jesus has done that for us. But what about those ritual laws? Because they are to do with tabernacle, temple life, approaching God, being pure, being clean. Have a think about the miracles that Jesus performed. And I think we'll work our way from there. Because when you think about who Jesus healed, often it was people with leprosy and clean. That was what they cried, wasn't it? Skin disease. Jesus healed them often. Today, leprosy is fairly specific, nasty, debilitating disease, but when the Bible talks about leprosy, it's a much more general description, and it's associated with unclean instructions that we've just been uh, considering. When Jesus healed the sick, think of what Jesus said often. He cleansed them. I think it's very helpful if you've got a if you've got your Bible with you at all, Mark 14. No, Mark 1 even. Can't read my own notes. Mark 1 and verse 46. That's why I saw the 14. Uh, Mark 1 helps if you're in the right gospel. I was currently in Matthew. Mark 1 46. Well, there isn't a verse 46, so clearly 
clearly I've got the wrong thing. It's Mark 40 to 46. A, ma a man with leprosy, I can't type, that's the problem. A man with leprosy came to Jesus, begged him on his knees. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. It's really helpful, isn't it? Jesus cleanses him and the man is able to go to the temple. See what Jesus has done in fulfilling that? He's gone and the man now is able to go because Jesus has cleansed him. He's clean. He can go into the presence of God. Or Mark 5 and verse 25, the woman uh, with uh, the flow of blood. Um, woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal in the care of many doctors. Had spent all she had yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd, touched his cloak, uh, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And once Jesus realised power had gone out from him, he turned around, who touched my uh, clothes? And then, uh, we'll move on to the end, your, uh, verse 34, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She can go in peace. Why? She's clean. Jesus has cleansed her. She, he's made her clean. Jesus is dealing with people in those uh, miracles who are unclean. People who cannot come to the temple to worship God. That woman couldn't. But Jesus cleanses them so that they can. That is how he fulfills. And he does it literally for many people in the Gospels as we read it. But of course, he does it for us as well. That's how he fulfills these quite complex ritual um, laws. He comes, he deals with the types and shadows that Leviticus is dealing with. And so our purity, our uncleanness problem with God, which is, of course, the problem of our hearts, Jesus comes and cleanses them. Why Jesus gives us a new heart? You could say it like this. We are unclean before God because we are, not just because we sin, but because we are sinners by nature. But Jesus comes and doesn't just deal with our individual sins. He deals with the fact that, of our uncleanness, our ungodliness, the fact that we are sinners by nature. And that's the difference, really, that Jesus makes. That thing on your skin, you're an Israelite. Go back thousands of years, you've got a mark on your skin. What is it? What am I to do? Is it this? Is it that? Will the priest be able to make a sacrifice for me? Is the priest clean or unclean? Has the priest made atonement for his own sins before he does anything for me? And again, as we've seen the last few weeks, there's no assurance there, is there? And yet, tonight we can have a certain hope, a sure hope, a certain assurance, because we come in the Jesus who has fulfilled all those laws. And so as we come into the presence of God, as we pray, 
And as we draw near to him and he draws near to us, we come knowing that we are ritually and morally clean because of Jesus. Because we know that he has been accepted by the Father and that we come in his merits and that the Father has accepted us because of what he has done. That's how he has fulfilled those laws for us. He makes us clean so that we can worship the living God. He makes us clean so that the Holy Spirit can live within us. He makes us clean so that we can be worshippers of the living God. Ritually, morally clean, because Jesus has fulfilled it all.